You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. speaking with Richard Cadry. He's the author of the Sandman Slim series. He's also one of the original cyberpunks. He's a musician and we're right now listening to his latest release as Seven Bloodstained Orchids. And his new collection of short stories is The Secret of Insects. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Uh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. You know, I'm um, one of the things that struck me as I listened to this music, um, it is the perfect soundtrack to read your stories to. Do you listen to music when you write stories? All the time, yes. It, it's it's really essential to me to have some kind of music on. I wanted to talk to you about the Sam and Slim series first. You've lived with this series as being, you know, one of a, a very popular series a lot of acclaim from a lot of people. You've lived with it for what, uh, six, uh, nine, ten years? No, it's more like twelve or thirteen at this. <laughs> no, it's probably longer than that because it was a year off. So maybe like thirteen or fourteen years altogether, if you if you count the development phase too. Now, one of the things that interests me is that um, you wrote a whole series and brought it to an end, and that's a really hard thing to do. Did you know the arc of Sam and Slim when you began? Yes. You um, did? Wow. Well, I, 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 knew it, I, knew it at, I knew it at book six, because the whole idea for me was to do, um, when, when I realized that publishing was going to let me do it, I wanted to do two six book arcs. So book six ends one major arc of Stark's story. Then book seven is almost a reboot of where Stark is in his life. And then we go through the next six books. And that at, at, that, at that point, then I knew where Stark was going to go. I didn't know how he was going to get there entirely, but I knew where he was going to go. Now, Stark is a really strong character. I mean, and the books are both hilarious and awesome at the same time. Uh, living with that character, you know, as a writer and, and having other projects, too, boiling in your head, and some of them you wrote in the midst of the Stark series. Uh, how did that work for you? I mean, was Stark like a... Uh, were you doing method acting, so to speak, <laughs> to, to become Stark and write those books? Sometimes I read the material, especially Stark's dialogue, out loud, and that would help me get into the rhythm of his voice and the story itself. So I suppose you could call that some sort of, um, yeah, um, acting in the way, method acting, probably. Uh, yeah, I needed, especially between books, I needed, he has a very specific rhythm, and I write to rhythm a lot. Sometimes I throw grammar out if if it if it gets in the way of the rhythm of the writing. Ah, so interesting. 
Stark was mostly about hitting the beats. You know, one of the things that struck me, I was there's a, a are a couple of Stark stories in, in this new collection, mm-hmm. is that. And I've read, you know, I read the first, I will confess, I read the first book in the series, and then I wanted to read the whole series, but, you know, life got in the way, and I wanted to, I yeah. did not want to spoil it, because the experience of reading these books is really fun, and there are very few authors who manage to do what you do, which is to write a nice long series that you can read, and ha- that has an ending, actually two endings, <laughs> as right. you put it. So. Right. Um, but one of the things that I realized when I was reading the short stories in this novel that uh, bring out the Stark world is that you do something that's very difficult, which is to combine laugh out loud humor. This is some; these are some of the funniest books I've ever read, and I found myself when I was back rereading parts of the short stories, I'd still laugh at the laugh lines the second mm-hmm. time around, which is really an awesome use of horror uh, humor. That is, but. Awe, the kind of awesome scenes you paint, which, I mean, start in one of these series, Stark is, is in hell, and and we see, you know, the, these vast visions of hell, and it's really kind of awesome to read them, but you would think that the humor would mitigate against that, tend to deflate the awe, but it doesn't. And I was wondering how would you approach that or... If you ever thought of that, you know, being a problem in your writing, the Stark novels, that is. Uh, I never saw it as a problem because if you've ever dealt with like EMT workers, uh, emergency room people, certain kinds of doctors, cops, people like that, they all have a very dark sense of humor. And I knew that if I if I could hit that kind of humor, it would it wouldn't detract from the horror of the story it would in fact to my mind enhance it so that um you would see both sides of stark's personality and both sides of his life stark does have a dark sense of humor because he had to because he's been through so much it's the same way with those emt guys you know they uh they've experienced so much and there's no other way to deal with it sometimes other than to laugh. Now, this collection of stories is by from uh, Subterranean Press. They're a mm-hmm. small publisher, and I wanted to just mention, talk out about them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very, I'm very happy with the cover. That's why I held it up. I got really lucky. I've been very lucky with all my book covers, and I really love this one. Now, is this uh, J.K. Potter? It sure has the look of J.K. Potter. No, I, I can't remember the. Um, artist thing i'm very sorry it's uh an artist who does a lot of film film work let me see if i can find cover illustrate uh, by christopher christopher shy okay. does a lot of film does a lot of film posters uh well it's it is super awesome and very disturbing and gives a good idea of what's coming in the book Talk about Subterranean Press, which is a, a small press publisher that has been around. Mm-hmm. I remember I first started reviewing horror back in the mid-'80s, and I remember when Subterranean Press first came into existence. I, 
I wrote an article about the like the four mm. publishers, and they were one of them. They're still around, so, and that's really impressive to remain completely independent in all of that time. Well, they do great work. That's one of the things that was exciting about working with them. They are very careful with how they put their books together and how they produce them. Unlike a lot of mainstream presses, the physical object is gorgeous. It's wonderful to hold, wonderful to read. You get um, slipcased versions. You get um, even the regular versions are just beautiful objects to have. Uh, it's sometimes it's, it's it's you want to buy two of them, one to just keep and one to read because you know that you know you might wear the thing out. So. Yeah, they and they do really exciting authors and books, and I'm really happy to be working with them. I have to say I agree on all counts. The books are gorgeous works of art. Now, at times, there are a few of, of those books that I do own, too, of one to read and one to just have as you yeah. know, a beautiful book to put on the shelf. You know, the, the stories in this collection took me back, uh, actually— straight back to the mid 80s when I first started reading horror I was had never been interested in, in it before and aside from I guess no I that would be wrong because as a young child I cut my teeth reading Richard Matheson paperbacks that mm. my parents had hidden behind the couch Okay. <laughs> That's I, a good start. Matheson's a really good place to start. Oh yeah, he he's great and, and this book too, the stories in this, the, that first book, the first story, the ambitious voice IQ, oh my God, that was amazingly awesome, but awful. And, and it just brought back the feeling of reading stories, the horror stories in the 80s that felt like um, almost forbidden or wrong or like, you shouldn't be reading these because they'll damage your mind or damage your soul or something, but they're incredibly pleasurable. Talk about creating the scene in that first story, which is, I mean, it's, you know, pretty simple, but oh my God, where you take it and what you do with it is amazing. Well, thank you very much. I wanted to create a simple story uh, of a home invasion that went horribly wrong. And it took me a while to figure out exactly how to do it. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the 80s because one of my influences is Clive Barker. And exactly. That's when I, when I first started reading him. So there's probably some Barker in there. Um, it yeah. took me back to reading the... Uh... Uh, back in the 80s when I first bought uh, the Clyde Barker Books of Blood in the uh, sure. Screen Press editions. Do you remember those? Oh, I do very much. Yeah, it reminded me both of uh, Clyde Barker and Dennis Etchison. There's that kind of a raw, razor feel, too. And one of the things I think you do well is to mine the everyday experiences of anybody who might pick up this book to read it, which is to say... Uh, we have two kids who go into this, this what you might call the sketchy house in a mm -hmm. neighborhood. Where it's there's always a house that's kind of rundown and weird, and you don't see the who lives there very much. 
And we had one of those when I was growing up in high school. It was kind of out behind the Eastland Mall. I lived in Covina. And out behind the Eastland Mall there, there was this house that was off to the side. It was actually, I think, abandoned. But it was very creepy to go, and they might have turned it into a haunted house. So talk about, like, my everyday America, and Mm -hmm. then essentially sending it to its own well-deserved hell. Well, that's what I like to do with most of my stories, is start out in a very real place. It's the same thing with Sandman Slim, where I was taking old pulp detective and thriller novels and just twisting them. And that's what I do with a lot of the stories is you start off from a real place and you see how far you can take take the real world and twist it without quite breaking it. You know, um, one of the things too is there's lots of uh, details in that story and there they're actually, you do, you invent a lot of really new stuff for that story. And it was interesting to me that you are able to, one of the, the strengths of the horror genre is that, you know, it works well in the, horror, the short stories. But you can, it seems like there's always ways to like improve it, which is to, that, to say, to make things even worse for the characters in the story. Oh, yeah, that's always been one of my philosophies. I learned that very early on is always take a character and do the worst thing possible to them. Whether that's whether that's a really any kind of story, whether it's a thriller or I mean, there's almost a love. There is a love story in Secrets of Insects. It's a very messed up love story. But that's another one where it's like. How can I take this and do the worst thing possible to these people? And not just to torture them. I think that's like the splatterpunk stuff and stuff like that doesn't interest me. But on an emotional and personal level, to put people through hell and see where they come out always is always very interesting to me. You know, the love story you're talking about, uh, it's called... uh... I'm thinking, I mean, it's what is love but the quiet moments after dinner. Yes. And that was an entirely, again, super awesome (laughs) and delightful story because I think you do something, and you do this often in this book, which it makes me very happy, is you create some utterly unique and memorable monsters. Mm. So uh, I love monsters, and, and I... It doesn't matter how juvenile they, it seems to say that because monsters can also be very, very, uh, you know, adult and scary. I think it's, mm-hmm. uh, so talk about creating the monsters in this book or just in general for you because you're you're good at it. Well, I love monsters. I grew up with monsters. I mean, I started out watching monster movies as a kid. I started up reading Poe and Lovecraft. So I new monsters were a big part of my life very early on. And as I grew older, I could see how monsters, different kinds of monsters, are just a reflection of humanity. So what monsters you choose, how you use them, how you let them interact with humans or other monsters even, 
tells a different kind of story each time. And it can reflect different parts of human experience, even though I'm talking about monsters, human experience seen through the eyes and actions of grotesque beings that are really, in the end, because they're art monsters, they're all metaphors for ourselves. A wolfman, you know, for really the uncontrolled, savage part of our personalities that everybody has and that we control for the most part. But what's it like to lose control completely? And that's that one character. And then you have the vampire that's more on the sensual, seductive side. Although not all of them. I mean, then you have the Christopher Lee Dracula, which is probably my favorite Dracula, who again is a monster, as opposed to the Bela Lugosi Dracula, who is seductive. You have Lee who's almost, he's more of a traditional vampire. If you've read early vampire lore, pre-Bram Stoker, vampires are much more monstrous. And Lee really tapped into that. So again, you have that combination of, in Lee, the monstrous plus the weird sensuality of the act and seduction of drinking blood off living other people. There's something very intimate in that act that you don't get with other monsters. You created one that I think matches that in every sense. And I thought that the the love story aspects of what is love, but the actions, what happens after dinner were really beautifully done. And, and in the end, it manages to be both awesomely horrific and yet tender and sweet. That is a combination that I frankly don't think I've ever read anywhere before. And so that shows one of the powers of the, the horror genre. And I agree with you too about monsters are a great way to externalize the things that we just don't want to talk about. You just don't want to talk about the what a vampirism is a metaphor for because it's embarrassing. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, especially in the story, uh, What is Love? But the moments after dinner, Ellen Datlow asked me to write a monster story, and I completely blanked. I had no ideas whatsoever. It's like, I've written things with monsters, but I've never had anybody say to me, right off the bat, write a monster. And I knew I didn't want to write a traditional again, vampire, werewolf, something like that. So I had to come up with a monster that was unique. And then I, I wanted to place the monster outside a traditional monstrous setting. So I had the idea, well, what if you take a, a monster and put them in a love story with another monster? So... I, that's again that idea of taking the world and twisting it a little so i wanted to take both horror and romance and kind of twist them as far and as hard as i could to see what would happen 
You know, the title story is in a genre that I absolutely love, and it's weird. In my in my dotage here, I enjoy these kind of stories as almost comfort reading. For me, comfort mm-hmm. reading is a great Cthulhu Mythos story, mm-hmm. and, and The Secrets of Insects is a great Cthulhu Mythos story. And I love the way that you... Throughout the story, this the story really exemplifies start out with something normal and you just kind of twist it until we're really in Lovecraft country, but as created by you. So talk about working in the, the Lovecraft vein. Well, with The Secrets of Insects, I wanted to write a, uh, a Cthulhu mythos story and make it as un-Lovecraft as possible. So I wanted to set it in the real world, even in a very banal setting. It's just two cops driving a serial killer to prison. That's all I wanted. And so most of the story is just the dialogue between those three people. The most action really in the story is when they stop for gas. So I just wanted those relationships and for the horror to come out very slowly through their talk and through a few weird things that happened along the way, but nothing huge. I I didn't want tentacles. I didn't want, you know, uh, horror from the stars suddenly intruding on them. I wanted to be very low key and for the horror to creep up in that way. You know, your stories in this book universally are very cinematic. And I know that you have talked about uh, submitting film scripts. Um, Are we going to see anything uh, like one of these stories, any one of these stories could make like a good, terrifying movie? Are we likely to see any of them on the big screen or the small screen or both? I have some stuff that's optioned, but what's more exciting to me is I have my own stuff in, in going through uh, the very early production process right now. I mean, everything can fall apart. It's Hollywood. But I have a couple of projects that are original, specifically for film and television that I'm really hopeful about. So I love writing scripts. I I loved, I, I wrote comics for a while and I really enjoyed the process of creating scripts and telling stories visually. Uh, and comics were a great way to learn because one of the first things I learned is to shut up when you can and let the visuals tell the story. That was a great lesson because my first comic, I guess my first couple of comics were very verbose. And looking back at them now, I'm kind of embarrassed by them. It took a while for me to trust the artists and the art process to carry the story. And I'm trying to do the same thing in both the film and television stuff I'm working on now is to give people what they need, give people character and story, but then shut up and let the director and the visuals tell the rest. You know, um, another key aspect of any movie or TV part is the music. So I wanted to talk now, we'll just listen Mm -hmm. to... Uh, a track called Stalker. 
And, and it was interesting listening to your Seven Bloodstained uh, Orchids album that for me, at least, um, it was, you know, it has the, you know, the tone or the level of uh, like a Brian Eno, but oh my God, it's so different because it feels like, you know, you're composing the sound equivalent of like the inside of the house in ambitious boys like you and that's the house i never want to go in <laughs> right yeah the the work on seven bloodstained orchids which in fact is a film title an italian giallo film from the 70s so i just lift i just stole that for the for my solo music project the sound, uh, like a lot of people who work in ambient and, and, and sound sculpture, Eno is, you can't escape Brian Eno. I mean, he is the one that really put it on the map. But more than Eno, for, for this project especially, um, I relied on people like Inspirations, sort of uh, like Lustmord and Robert Rich, people like that who were capable of doing darker, more soundtrack-like pieces. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted each piece to tell a little story. And so, again, it all ties back into movies. Uh, I like soundtrack, I like good soundtrack music. And that's what this was. Each one is a little bitty soundtrack to a very small story. Have you written prose stories for any of these specific pieces? Or do they may, tie to? Uh, uh, I've written little notes to myself. I've written extensive ones for uh, my band with B.C. Smith, A Demon in Fun City. And they're my uh, Our album is coming out on June 7th. We wrote extensive notes for each of those songs, setting up scenarios. Oh, wow. Well, that would be interesting. Uh, let's ratchet back to some bloodstream orchids now. This is an album that you created at home recently. Um, talk about, you know, as I understand it, you used to haul around a, a B3 and a road stage piano. Is that right? Well, that was, a, that was many years ago when I was playing regular rock and roll. But that was, yeah, um, I loved that B3. I mean, it was horrible to move. But God, what a great instrument that was. Uh, we wired it up. You know, B3s traditionally go, go through what's called a Leslie candid, uh, cabinet, which is a amp through the bottom and then a horn that turns on top. And that's how you get that, that trebly uh, twirling sound of that kind of organ. But we also wired it up so it could go through a guitar amp. So it could just punch through any sound at all and really be a muscular instrument. So I really loved it for that. You don't need to do that anymore, of course, with digital instruments. And that's what I use these days, but um, I miss the physicality of the B3. I mean, that first, all of um, Seven Blunt State Orchids was recorded using just a little 39 key MIDI keyboard where I would shift the octaves because I only had they had very little uh, room to work with the actual keys themselves. So I was constantly hopping back and forth using 
using the octave controller and the tone wheels and things like that. But that's the good thing right now is you need very little equipment to create really interesting sounds. So you work entirely in software, essentially. Yes, I work through uh, Logic Pro. Wow, that's really interesting. What do you use? What kind of do you use synthesizer programs that just exist within Logic Pro, or do you buy like plug-in programs? Both. Uh, Logic has some really good built-in sounds, but I bought a lot of stuff through Native Instruments, for instance. They do amazing things, and so I've used a lot of their a lot of their plugins for the music, especially more recently as I become more confident in my ability to use the digital tools. I'm starting to use more complex plugins. Arturia, I use Arturia keyboards and Arturia has some great plugin programs. They have a synthesizer suite that's virtual versions of like a dozen old synthesizers, everything from Minimogs to I'm blanking on the, the old... Um, CS80? Yes. And uh, things like that. So it's wonderful to be able to play with that stuff. And it gives you a huge array of sounds. As I said, I had a very small keyboard for that first, for that first album. And just using the software, I was able to create a ton of different sounds. Uh, they sound universally awesome and i'm interested in it. so um let's see if we can make the uh, machines do what they're supposed to be here and hear a little bit of your work with uh bc smith um this is uh badlands neurology one of the singles you released yeah that was our first single So tell us a little bit about how you met B.C. Smith and how you guys uh, collaborate. I met B.C. completely by accident on Facebook. During COVID, I'd played music for years, a long time ago, and then I had a freak out. I had terrible stage fright playing in front of people. So at one point, I just had a complete meltdown, sold all of my equipment, every single piece of it, and just stopped playing music. And then during COVID, when I, I, I also do photography, but I, and I like working with models, but during COVID, I couldn't. See, all I could do was stuff by myself. So I started thinking about, maybe this is a good, maybe this is a sign, maybe this is a good time to get back to playing music by myself but I had no idea how to start I had no concept and I just put out a, a question <clears throat> on Facebook does anybody have any ideas does anybody have any suggestions of keyboards software things like that and BC showed up and gave me a lot of good advice and I knew he was a composer he's mostly does soundtracks he's a really good composer and I started sending him, I started posting some of my Seven Blunt State Orchids pieces. 
And he simply asked one day, do you want to try doing some stuff together? And so what we do is he'll start a track, send me the, what are called stems, which is each, each different instrument in a Logic Pro document. And then I'll load those into Logic on my end. And then I can, I can play what he did and then I can add stuff to it. And it's the same thing with me. I would just create stems, send them to BC and let him start playing around. And it, it's that simple. We just, we just upload material to each other and bounce it back and forth until we are happy with what we came up with. It's really, we used to trade tapes back in the old days, four and eight track tapes. This is much easier and you're much easier, much less likely to mess things up. Because even if you used to drop those old reel-to-reel -reel tapes, you could mess them up. Same thing with the digital tape later. It was easy to physically damage the tape itself. So with, with digital digital files, if something goes wrong, it's easy to just send another another set of files. You know, um, one of the things that uh, struck me in this book was uh, you had uh, talked about working with Hollywood, and there's a, a story in here called The Air is Chalk, which mm. is an entirely awesome, but also a very funny a monster story, kind of a, a apocalypse. So uh, the, the character in characters in here come from Hollywood. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, does that reflect some of your experience in this uh, fine city? Yeah, a bit. I mean, San. One of the reasons I, I wanted Sandman Slim in L.A. was to get to be able to make fun of Hollywood because I've dealt with it on and off for about twenty years, and I've had. A lot of good experiences have had some bad ones and just a lot of weird ones. That was the, that's kind of what I wanted to write about that, that area in the middle of Hollywood where everything is strange. Everyone is hustling and everyone is trying to figure out who everyone else is and can they get something from them? You know, I've been to a lot of Hollywood parties where no one knew me. And people would sidle up all the time and talk to me. And after a while, you realize, oh, they're just trying to figure out if I'm a new actor, a new producer, something like that. And the moment they realize that I'm just a writer, they would immediately move on to the next person. That reminds me of an old 80s uh, sitcom called Frank's Place. Mm -hmm. It was about... Uh, restaurant and they kind of broke the fourth wall uh, occasionally on that show and you kept seeing this one guy through the whole show and then on the very last show they go somebody goes who are you he goes i'm the writer <laughs> i was oh, the only nice. time they ever let him talk um nice. you know uh as a writer of of horror stories one of the things i think you do very well is to create a mood really quickly in the story you use the short story format well in this book and, and so i like you. you to talk about i think too that the horror genre is very friendly to the short story short stories remain powerful and popular actually in horror when they're kind of forgot by everybody else but people will remember a good horror story and look for it even now i think oh absolutely it's a great form um 
short stories and novellas both are really important right now. I mean, obviously novels always are, but people are coming to love the shorter versions of those stories. Well, you look at Clive Barker. I mean, Clive Barker started his career with stories, not novels. And, and I mean, and I mean, for a long time, I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, he wrote a couple of stories, got a book deal. No, I mean, there are three books of blood. Um, six. What is that? Six. <laughs> yeah, Screen Press uh, published four, five, and six. Um, much later. I had no idea. Okay, I'll look um, for those too. They're they're wonderful. I you bet. <laughs> you you know one of the things too is that the short the horror short story was born uh, you know horror the horror genre as we know it was born as a short story and one of the things i think that that you do very well is take up some of the you know the forms the the themes and the forms like the the uh the telltale heart is a kind of a classic you know, means of exteriorizing, uh, you know, this internal conflict. Mm -hmm. And I think you do that well in this book. So talk about, you know, just using, revisiting some of the oldest tropes in the horse ride, which are always fresh somehow. I think that's because of the human aspect of it. Absolutely. I think I just finished a new story that's, it's not like the telltale heart, but it's told a bit like it in, in that it's told from the point of view of the awful, the most awful person in the story. And for the awful person, everything is normal. And I, I always think of that as deflection horror. There's regular horror where you're outside the horror looking in. And so you see the monster, you want to run away, you want to fight the monster. But if you're telling the point from the point of view of the monster, everything is normal. Everything is fine. And you have to think of the story in terms of how is, how is all the stuff you're not seeing reacting to the monster? The monster's perfectly happy. The horror comes from knowing the horror they're committing outside of their own point of view. Razor Pig in this book uh, is a you know a lesson that we meet a character and who's looking for his, his daughter, and from the get go we think there's something a little bit hinky about his language <laughs> eventually as we realize that and go further into the story every, you know the, the world is as it is which is not good mm -hmm. so right but i love the way that you just use the kind of hints of language to lead us in from a you know a somewhat normal but you know a relatable situation father looking for loster maybe she just ran away because with her friends mm -hmm. so but then it leads us into one layer after another you you keep like you know digging the hole until till you get to the bottom of the hole and then you go underneath the hole <laughs> thank you yeah razor pig 
I, that's another sort of, I, I want to set up kind of a classic story. It's literally a man's daughter ran away with a circus and he goes looking for her. And that's a story in which I want, again, it's, it's a bit deflection horror in which we're seeing the story from one person's point of view who is not necessarily a good person. And so, but everything again is normal to him. But at the same time, as bad as he is at moments, he's still a loving father who wants to find his daughter. And so I wanted to play those two aspects of his personality, uh, play them off each other. And, and in the story that follows it immediately, A Trip to Paris, that really does have a lot of the telltale heart in it, in mm. that the, the guilt is manifests itself to the character. But the character is really a different, it's, it's a stretch for you, which you do really well. It's a, a kind of an uptight suburban mom. I mean, as, yeah. you know, a Karen. She'd be a Karen. In, 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 yeah, a bit. A bit like a Karen. She's very judgmental of the people around her. But I want, again, I wanted to try something different, which is to write a story that was as quiet as possible. You know, uh, no monsters, just people who do bad things. And how that affects their mind, how that affects their view of life, and how very quietly it can bring on their own doom. But to do it in the smallest way possible, to creep up on the story. And I think that that, that kind of uh, finesse, what's interesting to me too, is a lot of the stories in this book have the feel of give you the feel of the novel reading experience. They, they have a lot of, you know, depth. They have a lot of uh, characterization, but they're short. And I'm wondering for, for you, how do you have to like stop yourself from turning any short story you write into a novel? No, but my stories tend to always be longer than I think they're going to be. Um, I always think, well, this is 3,000 words. And it's always five or 6,000. I had no idea that Razor Pig was going to be 12,000 words. That just, that really crept up on me. But, you know, the man's story just kept going and going and getting more complicated as it went along. So the stories do creep up on me, but I try to keep them, you know, a reasonable length. I don't, my stories are very different from my books and I try to keep some distance between them. You know, no, there, there are. I, I love the uh, Sandman Slim Christmas Carol. It was really, really mm. funny, but also, you know, and has all the kind of rawness and, and awfulness of Sandman Slim. But also, it was very sweet, and I think that that's a, a super hard thing to pull off. And 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 you do this a couple of times too, because the other story we were talking about earlier, um, what is love, but the quiet moments after dinner is also very sweet, but way over the top, horrific. Talk about combining, you know, trying to um, unite opposites and and not like dilute them in in the center. Well, the Sandman Slim Christmas Carol 
was just something fun to write. I always had this idea of Sandman Slim out of his element. I didn't want him fighting monsters. I didn't want him in hell. I didn't want some big story of Stark saving the universe. I wanted the simplest setting possible. And I always had this image of, I won't give it away, but Stark dealing with a particular kind of vampire. But again, I didn't want it to be a Stark versus vampire story. I wanted to be Stark and a vampire, but to take that and twist it around to something new. So I wanted to make the vampire is in his own way as messed up as Stark. And at the same time, it's a Christmas story. Uh, I wanted to make it, you know, Christmassy. I wanted to, I wanted to give some hope and some levity that I think you kind of need at Christmas. I wasn't writing the, the title of a Sandman Some Christmas Carol is kind of ironic because I wasn't writing a Christmas Carol. It was just a Christmas story that I wanted to tell an incident in Stark's life. Not a big, not a big heroic moment, but just something odd that happens to him. Not because of anything in the world, but because he's Stark and he just attracts the strange. You do get the big heroic moment in The Devil in Red, which is a Stark in disguise story. I'll, I'll call it to not spoil it, but I have to say, I mean, so many, uh, the combination of laugh out loud and, and awesome and very complicated scenes, you paint pictures in the reader's mind that include a lot of specific points and manage to make them come together, which is, requires a... a a great deal of talent, I think. Does this was that story like heavily revised, or did that just pour off the tip of your pen? And feels like you know a passion project where you're just entertaining yourself and making us laugh. But when you look back on it, you realize, wow, there's a lot going on here. That was one that came pretty quickly, and again, it's a longer story than I planned, but I knew about half of it going in but then one of the things i like in writing is planning part of my work and but leaving holes along the way and those holes are what i fill in as i start writing the story so because i figure if i could surprise myself i could surprise the reader so i'm always looking for the surprise for myself. You know, uh, again, getting back to Brian Eno, I saw a lecture that he did years ago when he talked about how people think about songwriting. They think you start here and you just, you go from A to Z, that that's a song. But he was saying the way he writes is you create something and then something strange happens. So you kind of have to start over. So you have something that moves here and then you move horizontally to start over again. Then you create something and something strange happens and you move again. And so what you end up with, instead of that soft curve, you end up with a staircase in which you can, where surprises happen and you revise the story as you go along. And I always remembered that. And so a lot of my writing is that staircase rather than that smooth line. It sounds too the, <clears throat> like a lot of, 
your writing is inspired by musical structure. Mm -hmm. Oh, music. Like I said, I listen to music all the time and it's really integral to what I do. I can't, I can't live without it. And, and, you know, film too, film's a big influence. And so soundtrack music comes from that. So I actually, I have a huge soundtrack uh, playlist on my computer that I listen to often when I'm playing. And it's everything from Nino Rota to Trent Reznor. And, um, you know, Philip Glass is in there, some other people. You know, so when you're painting pictures with sound, it helps me write pictures. Do you listen to like rock and roll when you write or do you find the lyrics distracting? Yeah, I can't listen to anything with vocals. I will not. I can't. It just throws me right out. Interesting. Yeah. Now, um, you have a novel coming out that you wrote uh, in collaboration with Cassandra Kaw. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the collaboration and about the novel. The novel is called The Dead Take the A-Train, and it's set in New York. It stars a psychic operative named Julie Cruz. Julie Cruz is very good at her job. She takes down demons. She gets, you know, she'll do exorcisms. She'll take down ghosts. The problem is she's had a string of bad luck. She's short on money. She's short on clients. She's short on her reputation because another an ex-lover of hers has been kind of talking her down around town and it's to manipulate her so that he gets her, he's another person who works in the psychic realm. So he'll throw her really tough jobs and then claim the credit for himself. So Julie really hits a wall one day and says, what I need is a guardian angel. I need someone to guide me and help me through this mess. So she goes looking for a guardian angel and it seems like she finds one. But the moment she finds one, all hell breaks loose in New York and it just gets worse and worse and worse for Julie and her friends. Well, this sounds like fun. And you, uh, your new solo project is coming out in October. That's the Devil House. Is this uh, your? Well, that's, uh, the, it's the the Pale House Devil. The Pale House Devil, right? Now, is that that our work of folk horror? Is it? No, 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 no. That's that's much more of a detective story. It's about two. Um, I'm not sure you could call it detective or not. It's a story of two assassins, one alive and one dead, who, again, work for hire. The living assassin kills the dead the dead assassin kills the living and they have a really good partnership and they're friends and it's a story of them being uh hired for a job that's much scarier and darker than anything they've handled before something completely out of their realm and i tried to again like stark i tried to make it both horrific and funny and entertaining along the way and surprising too um i was able to introduce some new kinds of characters i think and uh, i'm hoping to do two more of stories with those killers 
So that, um, do you have anything else in the works? I mean, it seems like you're a super busy guy. You're a musician. You're a writer. Yeah. You're working in Hollywood. Do you? Uh, what do you do for fun? <laughs> music is fun. Music. I like music. All of our music. Seven Bloodstained Orchids, my own stuff, and my band with BC, uh, a, devil, uh, a Demon in Fun City. They're all instrumentals. So it's a way for me to get away from words. Because sometimes when I write a long piece, it's just that it feels like my head is so full of words, I need to get them out. So I'll go to music for a while, which is completely nonverbal. And that really helps me balance out words and no words. Because I, I just, there are moments where I need to just be silent, not talk, not listen to anything verbal, just listen to sounds. Like what we're hearing now. And what we're hearing now. <laughs> and it strikes me too that music is an incredibly high bandwidth communication device that allows you to communicate in with the sound on all the things that you cannot possibly communicate with words. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so it's telling stories in a way that's that the, that the listener can interpret any way they want. I can have an idea of a story. It's like a, it's like an untitled painting. You, the the artist the artist may have some idea of what the intent was, but the moment the viewer gets there, that intent can shift. And it's the same thing with the music. I have a story idea. BC has a story idea, and then we put it out and we let the listeners find their own way to the story and they may they may find something completely different in the music but that's okay as long as they find a story in there somewhere and also as a photographer have you considered or are you considering releasing a book of your photographs i've been in some photo books i don't know if i want to do a book of my work just because it's personal enough. I have some stuff online. I have a lot of my favorite work is behind a password protective gallery. And I don't know if I'm ready to put all that stuff out in the world. People can go to um, Pulp Sabotage is one of my sites. And if you go to the ephemera section of Pulp Sabotage, you'll find just some of my general work. And there's a couple of nudes in there, so be aware of that if you're looking at it while you're while you're in the office. But you can get a sense again. I, I wanted stories. You know, the idea for me of, of a photo is the photo is this big. You get to see this much. But again, I wanted to tell stories. So I want, as someone looks at it, to imagine what's out here beyond the frame. So I wanted each photo to have a little story in it too. You know, um, you mentioned Pulp Sabotage. Often on Facebook, I've seen your posts of like uh, old, what look to be old paperback book covers mm -hmm. that are super hilariously, you know, tweezed. Um, is that you doing that? 
Oh yeah, that's me. That's another way I oh used to relax. Oh my god, I thought I would just they I would are just hilarious. I would just, yeah, I would just you get these old pulp book covers and then I would just photoshop all the text off the front and then just put in mine. Well, congratulations that that you definitely need to put that on, on a, in a book because those are just Yeah, I thought wonderful. about that. I thought about that. I've been speaking with Richard Cadbury. His newest collection of short stories is The Secrets of Insects. Thank you for joining me, Richard. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.